Report Back, the podcast of the San Francisco chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. Our chapter is made up of over a thousand members, and our 11 issue-based and internal-facing committees are where the heart of our organizing happens. This is a praxis-centered podcast where we talk about the tactics and strategies of winning socialism with the organizers who plan and implement them. I'm Jason, a member of DSA San Francisco, and today I'm talking with Shanti about organizing against the curfew Mayor London Breed imposed in response to ongoing demonstrations against state violence and racial injustice in the wake of the killing of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and many others. Shanti, would you please introduce yourself? Hi, everybody. Shanti, she, her. Glad to be back. Glad to be back in SFDSA. It was gone for a little while. (laughs) Yeah, so um, something happened a few weeks ago that's maybe not exactly directly related to your uh, tenants' rights work. Um, So how can you give us a little background on on that? Yeah, um, well, the city of San Francisco, like many other cities, uh, you know, reactively out of, you know, fear and police sentiment, um, uh, instituted a curfew. Um, and I think this was this curfew was instituted by Mayor London Breed. Other curfews have been instituted, not just across the across the country, but also in other cities in the Bay Area. But the one that was issued by our mayor was particularly broad and sweeping. Um, and so right around uh, and it was it was really meant to cover the time period where, you know, San Francisco, George and Bay Area, George Floyd um, and Black Lives Matter protests were planned. Um, a lot of cities like started to lift their curfews after that. So, but, but ours was in a position to where it could be extended kind of indefinitely. Um, and it was a very, very broad order and it was clearly, clearly meant to, you know, it it was all framed by our police chief and our elected officials, except for some who were good, um, around, uh, around the issue of like all the, you know, the looting, the fires, the property destruction, the outside agitators, all of that. All of those narratives that we're all we've all been hearing, you know, the the the, the robbers, the white anarchists, whatever, you know, like that that's all of that kind of resulted in this curfew. Um, and so at one point, uh, the board of supervisors had a meeting uh, or a hearing rather to see if they were going to vote to modify this curfew. And they had several options; they could just let it be, at which point it was going to expire the next week. Um, they could, uh, like try to like extend it. They could try to, and they could try to end it. Right. And so they had this, uh, this hearing on a Tuesday, right before the day before Wednesday, there was a massive, uh, George Floyd protest, um, planned by mission youth, like particularly black and brown mission youth. Um, and that was an enormous protest. There ended up being, um, like tens of thousands of people there. And I'll, I'll get into that a little bit later, but it was basically intended to cover um, any protests that were known or planned 
Um, and it was an 8 p.m. curfew. And of course, it was an in enormous violation of civil liberties. Um, and basically, the Board of Supervisors decided to do nothing on it, um, particularly because they had to have a unanimous vote uh, to extend the curfew. Um, or sorry, a unanimous vote to end the curfew. Um, and once they, which apparently they didn't really kind of realize until like about three hours into that meeting, I listened to the whole thing, which was a little bit funny um, in terms of like uncertainty around what their powers were. But in the meantime, like we heard during that hearing from the police chief and from some supervisors, like completely, completely ridiculous, preposterous justifications for curbing people's civil liberties and their protests and the right to protest. Um, and so that was kind of what galvanized us to do a little bit of civil disobedience on Tuesday night, uh, which was the night before the big protest. Yeah, so after that meeting ended, which went really, really long, there was lots of people calling in against a curfew, if memory serves, and then the Board of Supervisors ultimately decided not to act. Um, and not, not to act and not to pr preserve San Franciscans, you know, ability to, to, to protest and make their voices heard, you know, despite all their protestations that the curfew was not a tool to, to quell dissent. Um, what happened uh, that night? Yeah, so uh, we, we put a, you know, we had been deciding when to do something for a while, a few days. Um, we'd, been, we'd been talking about it as quietly as we could bringing in like trusted folks and trying to have a conversation about like whether we wanted to do our own civil disobedience action uh of violating curfew and when that was going to be and you know with that hearing being so outrageous um particularly like like you mentioned like the majority of public commenters were quite clear this is bullshit this is violating our civil liberties you're already the it's the report for the police chief already is proving that you know this is disproportionately arresting um, black and Latino, like, like, especially men, but black and Latino, like San Franciscans way outside of their share of the population. This is racist. This is messed up. And they just were like, you know, threw up their hands, like shrug, you know, what if someone throws a Molotov cocktail at me and other stupid stuff like that. So, um, so yeah, so we decided that, you know, knowing that there was going to be a, a big protest the next day, um, knowing that that was led by black and brown youth, we didn't want to take away from that. Um, we wanted to kind of like provide some support and momentum to that moment that we all knew was coming the next day. So Tuesday night, you know, as soon as the hearing was over, we just decided let's do it. Um, we met at City Hall. Uh, we put out a call at the last minute. So like we didn't know how many people would turn up um, because we did it with about 15, 30 minutes notice. Uh, we put out a public call for people to come to City Hall. And then, um, then we sat in City Hall and practiced some chants, did some speeches, uh, violated some curfew. Um, and uh, we had a plan from the beginning, you know, we were thinking we go to City Hall, should we go to the Hall of Justice at 850 Bryant, which is like the county jail, um, which is a absolutely like, it's condemned, it's seismically unsafe, it's where horrible things happen. Um, so we were already kind of evaluating that. But what we heard uh, when we got what we got wind of at City Hall was that the, the SFPD was aware and was kind of talking about the fact that we were there. And I think just after the hearing, like they were a little, uh, they were, I think they were feeling a little sensitive. Uh, I don't know how sensitive, but my, my impression is that from people listening to police scanners and stuff that they were feeling a little sensitive about like immediately going in to arrest us. So they were kind of trying to like, it was kind of like a weird wait and see game 
uh, to see what we would do. But by that point, like after a little while, we basically we were at City Hall, um, which was great. We got a lot of honks. Some people joined, which was cool. Um, we had about 50 or 60 people there at that point. Um, and then we decided to uh, move on and uh, march to 850 Bryant, which isn't that far. It's probably like a 15, 20 minute walk max. Um, so we went from City Hall down to 850 Bryant and um, sat in front of the jail and uh, that's and continued our protest there. And uh, on the way there is when suddenly you were like, okay, there's one cop car. Like, okay, there's two. Okay, there's five. Okay, there's uh, like 160 riot cops for like 30 people. Yeah, and you guys had a really great chant you were doing about all that riot gear. The cops were. Like, that was that was the one. We had a lot of good. We had a lot of good chants. We had to keep it going, you know, like get to freshen it up every once in a while. Switch. Um, yeah, we got we got a bunch of chants in, but that was that was one, and it was especially. Uh, pertinent when we were sitting I think at that point there were about 30 of us there um I think there were 27 arrests documented um including one of uh, a journalist um who was just there observing uh, an uncredentialed journalist who was arrested with us and um also it was kind of it was kind of nice a couple people joined with us as they were uh, in the protests like just as we were walking through uh civic center at mid-market um, so there were, so for 27 arrests, like I, I tried to do a really rough count. I would say there were 150 riot cops, um, armed to the teeth. So yeah, they, they basically surrounded us for quite a while. Um, and then, you know, did the dispersal order, you know, they were very loud, all of that. They were fully, fully armed. And then, you know, then, then eventually like they moved in to arrest us, um, and then take us to what turned out to be kind of a black site. So. Yeah, it's interesting that they seem to be sort of cognizant that, you know, the whole point of, of this protest and subsequent arrest was to show that, like, this isn't about public safety. This is like we popes absolutely, absolutely no threat to anything. We're literally just sitting on the steps and clapping and chanting. Um, and this pro this curfew that you say is for public safety is really just to, to crush dissent. Yeah, exactly. And it was meant to draw that out in particular because, you know, knowing no, like having a sense of, you know, that the next day that Wednesday was going to be a big day. And I think we all anticipated correctly and we can get into that later, but like, I think we anticipated correctly that this black and brown youth-led protest the next day was going to result in, as the curfew already had, a massive violation of especially targeted at black and brown San Franciscan civil liberties. So we knew that coming in, and we wanted to draw attention to that, which we did to a degree, like because it's 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 150 riot cops getting paid $200 an hour, which we can also get into. Um, arresting 27 people. It was a massive, it was a ridiculous, preposterous, disproportionate response. And we had seen that the day before on Monday at City Hall, where there was one uh, aerial photo of one protester completely harmless, being like uh, surrounded by, I think, 50 or 60, a circle of 50 or 60 cops to one man right in front of the steps of City Hall. Like, we were trying to continue to play, like, you know, draw attention to this absolutely ridiculous disproportionate response, which like, you know, I mean, even even the most cynical person has to observe that it's a total waste of money. 
Yeah, I think there was information that came out recently that showed that like SFPD spent about three and a half million dollars on extra staffing for like the amount of time that the curfew was in effect, which was like how long, like a week or so. Yeah, yeah, about about actually like uh, right. So the 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 morning Wednesday morning or maybe it was Thursday morning, uh, but but Mayor Breed uh, revoked the curfew, but. She specifically revoked it so that it would cover the the mass Wednesday protest uh, from from local youth, um, and that it would expire that morning or the next morning, rather. Right. So, so was, yeah, you got you, got, okay. you guys got arrested Tuesday night. There was some press about it. London Breed comes out and says, "Okay, okay, I hear you. I'm going to lift the curfew, but I'm not going to lift it until the morning after this big protest uh, organized by the by the mission youth. Yeah, yeah. So it was like she said it for Thursday to expire Thursday at five a.m. Um, and and that was that was an entirely so we could penalize uh, protesters the next day, which is exactly what happened. Um, like to to finish what ha- to finish up on what happened to us, they arrested an uncredentialed journalist, which was who had already indicated that she was a journalist. Um, they almost, I think they like kind of approached a, another guy who I think was a photographer, if I recall correctly, and like were a, kind of menacing him, but he was like, I have a press pass. Like you have to, like, you can't arrest me. Um, and then, you know, they took us, we kind of thought we were going to get arrested for the hall of justice and taken into the hall of justice. Um, but instead they loaded us up in the paddy wagons and they took us to, um, to pier 50, which is this like creepy pier um by like right behind AT&T Park on the waterfront so like Mission Bay it's by the Mission Bay uh T Muni stop and there's like a there's the there's the light rail Muni stop there's this huge parking lot and then there's this pier and it was literally like a pier like warehouse kind of situation in the middle of nowhere that's very hard to like get around especially when transit is kind of not really running um, or like running extremely infrequently. It, it really, I've, I've said this, I've used this analogy before uh, in the last couple of weeks, but I really felt like I was like an extra in like a Sopranos episode, like a deal was about to go bad and they were like going to dump me in the ocean or something. It was like very creepy. Um, and we didn't know the site existed, right? We thought we'd be taken to like a regular police station, but this was a site that we found was particularly set up to process protesters. And that is... You know, they, they, they cited us, they let us out um, around midnight or so. Luckily, we had organized transportation and all of that. You know, we had uh, folks who, like, knew where we were going, who were kind of driving along, uh, following the paddy wagon. So, like, you know, we were good. But, like, that's a horrible place for anybody to be dropped off and then left there at, like, 1230 at night, especially, like, if you're a kid, especially, like, if you can't get home, if you live in, like, East Bay or anything, you're dependent on BART to get home or any other like transit service that's far from that location. And so it was like really funny that they kind of like, I mean, it's not funny, but it's like in retrospect, they took us to like a legit protester black site that they ended up using the next day. Yeah. And something that's like particularly ridiculous and pernicious about it is that they arrested you all for violating curfew. And then they'd like release you in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the night and expect you to get home somehow without just, violating the curfew again like it's a yeah. sort of catch-22 situation 
Yeah, it was really scary. Like if I had an organized transport, we had an organized transportation, like for me, for example, like I, it would have taken me at least an hour to walk home and I could have been rebooked for curfew at any point. And, and they made it very clear, um, in fact, in an almost menacing way, that if we were re, uh, re-arrested for curfew violation within a 24-hour period, including the next day's protest, obviously, that the consequences for us would be, and the charges would be far more severe. And they made that very clear when they were releasing us. In addition to bragging about how much money they made, which was... Uh, Two hundred, one hundred and ninety-two dollars an hour. They were getting paid to do this stuff, to just book people minding their business. Yeah. So after you all got home safe and sound, if a bit, you know, <laughs> late at night and maybe a little worse for wear, but mostly fine. The next day, there was a huge protest, um, as you said, organized by. Uh, black and brown youth um, at Mission High School, and there was I think it's like estimates of fifteen thousand people participating in this this march that started in the Mission, that went into the Castro, and then it went over to eight fifty Bryant. Um, so yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about sort of the the ripple effects of, of your action and, and what happened at that protest? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the momentum behind the protest was so enormous. I mean, you saw, I, I, I stayed home um, partly because I knew that if I, uh, uh, one, I wanted to get tested for COVID because I had been out at like three protests and then got arrested um, and was worried I would catch it from SFPD, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so- who I might add, or everyone I've seen at protests is wearing a mask except for the cops. Yeah, exactly. So... Um, I was particularly, like, I was a little concerned about that, and I, I decided I kind of might be a better resource for people from home, especially if folks got arrested, you know. Um, so I stayed home that day, um, but paid attention to what was going on, and that protest was amazing. I mean, if you look at the pictures of Dolores Park, like, all the people just gathering to march, there were tens of thousands of people there. I don't remember the last time we had a protest that was that big. Um, in SF. I mean, we have had them, but like that was that was truly an enormous, like Im- spontaneous, like emergence of people like fl- flooding out onto the streets. And so it was like really beautiful and really powerful to see this youth led protest. But I think from the beginning, like you could kind of tell with so many people that like there were going to be possibilities, especially because the protests kept going, kept going, the closer and closer we're getting to 8 p.m., that a lot of folks were still out there. So, like, I had a sense, um, and it seems like SFPD probably did, too, that there was going to be, um, that the protests were going to continue past 8 p.m., right? And that is what happened. Um, A lot of folks, like, went up to 850 Bryant, and a lot of the youth were, like, were were protesting in front of 850 Bryant, which was kind of, like, cool to see, because the night before, there were, like, 30 of us there, and then the next night, there were hundreds and hundreds in front of that same jail, um, people went to city hall, uh, people went to a lot of places. And so there were like thousands of people who were still out there. And I think also like kind of knowing, like being a little PR savvy, which I don't want to give them credit for, but like SFPD kind of tried to, hold, they held off for a little bit, right? Like they didn't go immediately after 8 PM after everybody, but you know, a couple hours later, they very much did. As soon as they kind of like, couldn't do it, couldn't not do it anymore. 
um, they did. And what they did in the mission in particular was truly, truly horrible. And luckily there was a journalist, uh, Julian Mark, uh, who works for Mission Local, which is like one of SF's like best local papers, highly recommended. Um, Julian was with the protesters. And so he was posting video uh, that SFPD was basically trying to uh, kettle all of them in groups of like 20 to 50 people. They were trying to isolate them, right? Mm -hmm. So they went in, they had a concerted strategy that you could clearly tell from reporting on the ground that they were, you know, kind of trying to split people up in these kind of sizable groups and kettle them separately from one another within a pretty small uh, radius in the central mission, right? Like only like maybe like five blocks by three blocks maybe is where most of it happened. But they were trying to isolate people uh, so that they could kettle them and arrest them. And the one that Julian, the group that Julian ended up being kind of stranded with was uh, was a group um, that was made to lie on the ground for uh, up to 30 minutes. Like, so that they, they obviously, they did stuff that they didn't do to us, which of course, like, I am not, like, I, I'm a person of color. I am not black. I am not Latinx. Um, and this is obviously black and Latinx youth, right? So like, they made them lie on their stomachs for 30 minutes. You can hear from the video that these kids are just asking, like, I just want to go home. I'm just trying to get home. Um, especially because, like, this is before around, like, when, like, right, this is before BART is about to close. So people who are not living in San Francisco who are coming over from the East Bay, like, they are actually absolutely screwed right now because they're being made to lie on their stomachs, like, which is incredibly horrible and inhumane and exactly and sadly predictable from SFPD because that's how they treat black and brown people. So they made them lie on their stomachs um, <clears throat> for a while. Um, and as like the video was coming through and the video was being posted live on Twitter, like you could hear them asking to go home. Like, I just want to go home, not making any trouble. It was an absolutely like, you know, cruel and humiliating. And they kettled them in, in as many disproportionate numbers as they kettled us um, or surrounded us, right? Like you would see 20 or 30 kids surrounded by like 60, 70, maybe more of these like fully armed to the teeth riot cops. Uh, other videos came out later where they were like incredibly hostile to just bystanders. They were hostile to journalists. You know, they were very threatening. Like uh, there was a video from a bystander like who was trying to film these kids on the ground. Uh, and they were just like, well, if you ever get like, uh, it's like, if you, if you, if I see you come back around this block, like you're getting booked for X, Y, and Z. Um, they were, yeah, they were, they were cops. They were being themselves. Right. And I think they like, they let their true colors show exactly when it was black and brown youth involved, which I guess shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. But, you know, the fact that there was a journalist there and the fact that there was like testimony like being posted in real time was really was was obviously like jarring to watch, but also like kind of betrayed the full extent of their brutality and their racism. Right, and it really proved true a lot of what people were saying at that Board of Supervisors meeting. People were calling in and talking about many things, but two things, which was, uh, you know, the, the curfew does not at all account for people who are essential workers, who work, you know, night shifts, have to, you know, get home from their job to their, their homes, you know, in the middle of the night, you know, including like medical people who, who work overnight shifts, things like that. And also people who called in and say, I live in the Richmond or I live in Pack Heights and I see, uh, you know, my neighbors walking their dogs late at night, hanging out at night. 
absolutely no police presence, no enforcement of the curfew. We know that this is going to be enforced selectively, primarily against black and brown people and in poorer neighborhoods. And, you know, there's no cops in in Seacliff, like, making people stay at home. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, there was, there was, yeah, I remember there was one of the more striking public comments on the curfew hearing was someone talking about, she was a white healthcare worker, which I think is what you're alluding to. And she, she mentioned that, um, that she was driving her um, uh, black and Latinx coworkers home from work because they were afraid that if they were in their cars, like driving, that they would get pulled over for violating curfew. And that was a completely justified fear because like, you know, we have, as it's just come out, like the arrest records have kind of come out in the last couple of days. We have a comrade who shall remain anonymous on Twitter who, uh, who released them or dug into them and released them. And that's exactly what the data showed. A lot of these curfew violations were just on totally BS grounds. Like sometimes they came up with some BS grounds afterwards, like I'm searching them for drugs or something like that. But it was disproportionately, very disproportionately black folks. Um, Like I think it was something on the order of 31% of the arrests were of black San Franciscans. Um, Most of the arrests were coming from within San Francisco, which is like contrary to this outside agitators. BS narrative, although, like, a lot of people also come in from East Bay, and they're not outside agitators either, but, like, you know, it was it was absolutely disproportionately Black and Latinx arrests, and when you look at the justifications for them, besides just slapping curfew violation, it was some, it was completely dubious, right? Which is what people were saying all along, you know, um, and when, when, back to the curfew hearing, when the, when the police chief, and, and, you know, a lot of our supervisors, moderate and progressive, this was a bipartisan or whatever you want to call it uh nonsense um when you heard uh the sfpd chief like being asked by some of the more uh curfew skeptical supervisors why do you need this emergency police power when you can already do all these other things like declare unlawful assembly or perform like you know regular arrest routine whatever stop and frisk crap that they usually do yeah it's like already illegal to to loot a building you don't need a curfew for that you don't need a curfew, which like, but that's what Supervisor Preston, um, friend of DSA, very clear, rightly pointed out several times. Like, you don't need this. Why do you need this? And they would just make very dubious claims about like, oh, well, there could be violence. Like, and that was, and you know, they, they preyed on people's fears. They preyed on the supervisor's fears. They preyed on their racism um, to, to keep this curfew in place. And every single thing that everyone, pred- that all of us predicted happened. Like when it not just when it came to the arrest of these protesters, but also when it came to curfew related arrests of people who were just minding their own business. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, none of none of us were surprised. It's it's honestly kind of flabbergasting that, you know, that certain members of our board of supervisors would be surprised by this. And I wonder if they're paying attention. They probably aren't. I mean, so much of it really stretches the, the bounds of credulity that they have they have the, like the, really the only testimony they have to determine whether or not they should have a curfew is from the chief of police and the the, the sheriff both of whom have a very long history of proven time and time again making completely false statements to the board of supervisors about just basic facts of how what how what the police are doing and they get pulled up there again and again and say, oh, you know, we need the curfew because there might be Mazel Tov cocktails. 
Yeah. And we just listened to that. There's no testimony from any sort of experts on, you know, policing, criminal justice, you know, racial disparities, any of that stuff. It's just whatever the cop, the you know, head cop says is good for the cops. He, why would he have a you know biased point of view at all? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that kind of struck me was that even though we were like a relatively small group at that point, when we were marching from City Hall to 850 Bryant, we went through mid-market, right? And there are a lot of unhoused folks, especially black unhoused folks in, in mid-market, right? Because like, of course, um, you know, the black population of San Francisco is 5%, but they represent up to a, about a third of the homeless population. And one of the things like I was like, we did, I, I, I kind of thought, to be totally honest with you, I mean, like, we were a multiracial group for sure, but I was always, like, I'm always a little bit, you know, self-critical. And, you know, they probably were just, I thought they were just gonna be like, oh, well, here's just a bunch of kids, like, marching around or whatever. But a couple of them joined us, and, like, a couple of folks were, like, people were really kind of supportive, but, like, as we were kind of walk, walking by, there was, like, a lot of cheering and everything, and I was just couldn't, it couldn't help but strike me. I was like, yeah, look at all these people who are out here because they don't have a choice. Um, and, and are going to be disproportionately criminalized. And even though the mayor's orders ceremonially like had a couple words in it that basically said, well, you're not supposed to arrest the unhoused. Who is who are they actually going to go after? Like n- nobody like I, I find it hard to believe that anybody is is stupid enough uh, or willfully ignorant enough to not realize that that was going to disproportionately affect um, not just the black population, but also, you know, the unhoused population. And there's not like great statistics on uh, coming from the arrest records on how many of the folks who were arrested were unhoused, but that is a legitimate concern to have um, because that is disproportionately who it's going to be inflicted on. Um, so yeah, it was yeah, it's just it was it was it was comical in like how flimsy the excuses were uh, from the police chief. It was conical, the excuses from some of the supervisors, and it was very disappointing because some of them are ones I've worked with in the past to be full for full transparency. But it was comical to see um, their response where they were just sort of willing to uh, violate everyone's civil liberties to, to, to reinforce the very phenomenon that we're all out here protesting against in like allegedly progressive San Francisco because of some nebulous fear of like violence, right? Just the just the thought, like it was like, yeah, just conjuring up like hallucinations about Molotov cocktails was enough for them to do this, and it hurt a lot of people, you know. So, but yeah, I can't say I'm surprised. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, like uh, I, I think you and and the other people protesting with you really uh, were able to draw a very. Uh, clear picture of like what the, the curfew is actually intended to do and does. Yeah. I think we, I think we accomplished what we were setting out to do. And I, I think what, you know, I, I you know, in, in trying to act in solidarity, um, particularly with the protesters who we knew um, were going to organize and mobilize the next day. I mean, what, what ended up happening to them was, horrifying and gut-wrenching and I was listening to the police scanner all night from from home um the moment that I could like get a ride and get out to like pier 50 without being accused of violating curfew again within the 24-hour period myself I did uh by the time I because because like on the police scanner I could hear like as they were kettling all of these different people in the mission 
Um, I could hear that they were all taking them to Pier 50. I could hear that they were chasing groups down side streets um, in a very small radius. Like it was very much like isolate them, arrest them, book them um, strategy. And you could hear that strategy unfold on the police scanner, which was really horrifying. And I also kept hearing Pier 50, Pier 50, Pier 50 over and over and over again. So like it was, I, I that's going back to like, you know, we did what we had to do, which was to kind of try to draw attention to, to what we knew was going to happen. So any, any final thoughts about, about, uh, you know, this action and the, I guess this, the whole, uh, you know, couple of days or so that we're talking about? I mean, like, uh, honestly, like, I think, you know, just to, in the words of, uh, like, Harry Britt, who, like, was the original DSASF member um, in the 80s and an amazing person who passed away this week and was, like, the first person to, like, first member of the Board of Supervisors to set up, like, even the beginning of independent civilian oversight of police in SF back in the 80s. He was just, like, yeah, he, he said, like, I mean, stay angry. Like, you should be, you should always be angry. Um, you should always be angry in the same sense that someone feels angry when, you know, someone around them is being bullied because that's what's happening, right? And, like, the cops are bullies and we just have to stay mad. Um, and, I mean, that's really it. Like, we just can't let that anger dissipate. Um, and I, I, I'm, I'm really heartened by the amount of anger I'm seeing. Like, I mean, stay angry is a good thing. Stay angry. Um, I'm, I'm heartened in, like, so inspired by the amount of just spontaneous working class action we're seeing the uprising we're seeing and also just people willing to sit on a boring like you know san francisco police board of supervisors or police commission hearing and just chew them the fuck out like that needs to keep going um and so yeah and the, and the last thing i'll i'll plug is a little project that i've been working on um, with some comrades and some non-comrades and other folks, um, which is called, uh, it's a website, it's called uh, reinvestin.us. So like R-E-I-N-V-E-S-T-I-N dot U-S. And we're trying to expand it and find volunteers to help maintain it, uh, whether they're organizers or not. But ideally, it's going to be a website where uh, you can go to any, like many, many cities in the U.S. We're piloting it in California cities right now. Um, and be able to find uh, your next budget hearing, how to public comment, like have that whole process for you. So you can basically go to police commission hearings, go to city government hearings, all of that um, while maintaining your social distance and, uh, uh, and tear them a new asshole about defunding police. Thanks so much, Shanti. This is such a great conversation and I'm really excited about the reinvest in us tool. I look forward to more police commission hearings going into the wee hours of the morning. Yeah, me too. We're all going to be on them. <laughs> all right. IRL shit posting. Absolutely. I hope to hear Stephen Crespolvers in the sixth column. Oh yeah, my favorite. The legend. Democratic Socialists of America is the largest socialist organization in the United States. We have over 120 chapters all across the country. We're an activist organization, not a political party. To become a member, go to dsausa.org. To find out what our local chapter is up to, visit dsasf.org. Our intro music is by Young Chomsky. 